Father, we do thank you that you have called us together. We thank you that as we stand in your presence, you come and you meet with us. You speak to us. You transform us. We thank you that you have joined us together in community. And Lord, we ask that even now as we consider your word, you will come and you will deepen your work within us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks to Ryan, the band. Is that better? Is that better? I was interested in what Ian was saying about our worship evenings in terms of, you know, they're two hours. And you get to them and they never seem like two hours. Now, there's two ways to look at that. You know, it's like some sermons, they're half an hour, but it just doesn't seem like half an hour, does it? So just to prepare you for this morning, just to warm you up for this morning. You know, when we, when we come together, worship has got to be at the very center of who we are as a community as we give ourselves to Jesus. And it was wonderful to see just see how many people would just uh, engage in that last song. And I just thought there, well, that's where we really want to end, so I needn't preach at all. <laughs> You're not going to get away with that. We're looking at... Uh, <laughs> I nearly said Acts chapter 2. <laughs> We're looking at a chapter 2 of a particular gospel, which is John's gospel, because it comes after chapter 1, cunningly organized there, and we're looking at Jesus and the turning of water into wine. But I actually want to begin with verse 11, because in verse 11, John tells us why he included this story. And at the end of the gospel, John has... uh, Verses where he explains how he had a huge amount of material to choose from. He tells us if you were to write them all down, the whole world would not contain the number of books required. And so John does a work of editing. He sifts through the material he has in order to home in on those things that are so important to the Christian community to whom he was writing, to us. And so when we look at the stories contained in John, they're not just random selections. They are things that have been chosen for a purpose. And when we read verse 11, we find the purpose of including this story for us. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. So when we are reading through the scriptures, when we are reading through these next stories that we're going to read of of Jesus, what Jesus is doing here, he's manifesting, he's declaring something of himself to those who will follow him. There are seven signs contained within John's gospel. And each one reveals something more of the character, the person, and the power of Jesus. A sign exists in order to point to something beyond itself. 
that they perhaps represent something greater than itself or certainly points to something greater than itself. It doesn't, I've never read a sign that says, I am a sign, please read me. I've read a lot of signs I don't understand. Signs and I do not get on. So when driving, I have two sat-navs in the car. (laughs) You got it, didn't you? There are people here who look completely blank, Stu. I would like you just to explain now exactly what I mean. And you are out of reach of Sandra. She cannot reach you in order... So there are two sat-navs, one the official sat-nav, which tells me the way to go, and then there's the unofficial. Now, I call my official sat-nav Mary, because it's this lovely lady's voice speaking to you out of this machine, and Mary will tell me which way to go. Now, the other uh, sat-nav, called Sandra, will tell me which way I should have gone. And the big difference is, in the little corner of the official sat-nav, there's a little red circle which contains the speed at which you should drive. Now that is accompanied by someone in the passenger seat who predicts there is this prophetic gift upon Sandra. 30 miles an hour over there. And if you are doing 31 as you approach that sign, there is a warning cry from the, from the uh, passenger seat. Signs and I do not get on. I don't know how many men suffer the same issue. We're having a, thank you, Tom. We are having a ministry time for men who need to be released from this in, in a little while. But I, I just don't get signs. I'm travelling up a motorway and there can be the sign that this huge thing. And I do need both sat-navs to tell me which way to go because it means nothing to me whatsoever. But when we read of the signs in Scripture, I have an understanding of why they are there. And I don't have two sat-navs. I have one called the Holy Spirit. Now, isn't that good? Isn't that good? Hours spent in study reaching that conclusion. The Holy Spirit's job is to highlight scriptures, to bring scriptures alive to us so that we might understand more of who Jesus is, that we see more of his glory revealed as we read through scriptures. If the Spirit is not engaged with us as we read scripture, it's a dry story. But as the Spirit is engaged with us and highlights and brings Jesus right into the very heart of all of our lives, then his glory is revealed for us, and it is life-changing stuff. So let's read uh, John chapter 2. Now, I have asked Chris not to put this on the screen. If you have a real Bible, which is made of paper, please find John chapter 2. If you have a telephone, please find John chapter 2, and not the Pac-Man game that you may have been engaged with, and not the messages you're sending to your friends. I know what goes on here. You'll be surprised. But let's read through this in John 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. 
His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, Now, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee and thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Amen? Amen. That's the first part of the sermon. You're not getting away so lightly. <laughs> Tremendous story. And, and this story has multiple layers and we certainly cannot cover all that is there. We know very little of the detail of the wedding itself. It's interesting, isn't it, that there is no mention of who the family were, who the groom was, who the bride was, anything like that. We are simply told that a wedding took place, and the key figure in the wedding is not the bride, it's not the groom, it's Jesus himself. It's Jesus himself who comes into this situation and makes the difference. And John tells us in chapter 1 that Jesus dwelt among us full of grace and truth. And here is the Jesus of chapter 1, now at this wedding, full of grace and truth, revealing more of his glory through this simple act of turning water into wine. And not just wine, but the best wine. And the first thing we recognize in this story, it speaks of the transforming power of Jesus. Jesus comes into ordinary, everyday life. Jesus comes into ordinary, everyday lives and transforms from the inside out. Every Christian is a transformed work of Jesus. Amen. Now look at the person next to you and declare that over them. You are a child. Oh, well, never mind. The Christian life is a story of being transformed by Jesus. If it isn't, we've missed the point. Being transformed more into his likeness day by day. And he takes the ordinary things of our lives and he transforms us from the inside out. Because his vision for us is not simply that we are better than we were. His vision for us is that we are the best that we can become in him. The wine isn't some mediocre, a bit better than, you know, you might have got towards the end of the wedding. I think it's great when they tell you that uh, they normally serve the best wine first. And have you ever been to a wedding where some have had a little too much to drink? Yes, some have. And by the time that they get to the end of the wedding, perhaps they've no idea they've been to a wedding. But for, for us, 
This story tells us that the wine Jesus produces, whatever Jesus produces, whatever Jesus produces in our lives, it's the best that can be produced. We are on the way to being the best that we will ever be. Glory! Because we are being conformed and transformed into the likeness of Jesus every day as we walk with him. That is his goal, to provide wine in our lives. That's the best. And no matter what situation we are facing, we need to recognize that in this story it tells us that nothing is beyond the transforming power of Jesus. You know, a wedding is very special for the family involved. There are those among us this morning. They're preparing for the wedding of a daughter or a son or daughter. And, you know, there's a number of things they're doing. One is saving up. Or we've all been invited to a wedding. Ordinary things in some respects. Everyday things in some respects. But Jesus comes and he takes this ordinary and he transforms it into the best. And this miracle speaks of the superabundance of God's grace in our lives. And recognize that nothing puts us beyond his grace. And this is so important for us to realize as the followers of Jesus that nothing in this world can separate us from his love, his grace, and his mercy. We need to be those who invite him in. I thought about the consequences of Jesus not performing a miracle in this context and the wine running out. What would have been the result of that? And it's one major thing, shame and dishonor for the family. Now if you are at a, if you're a guest at a wedding, you expect that at the wedding reception there will be sufficient food for you, don't you? That's what we expect. That's what the family who organized the wedding expect. You don't expect to get to the end of the queue, you know, if there's a buffet being served. And what I've found is that in, when there's a buffet being served, it doesn't matter what you say. And this applies to the people of God more than the, the, the people who are not. The folk at the front of the queue will have plates piled high. The folk at the back of the queue will not. Because by the time they get to the end, there is a reduced choice. Let's put it that way. There is reduced choice. Because the folks at the front have gone that high, and the folks at the back have gone this high on their plate. And that is not what anyone who organizes anything like that wants. If you have an event, and you've got the catering laid on, the last thing you want is for the food to run out. That would bring shame. And it, didn't, it wouldn't matter how good the uh, event was. What's the one thing people would remember? It's the fact there's not enough. And in this village context in which we find this wedding, it would have brought absolute shame upon the family had the wine not been turned into wine by Jesus. 
if the wine had run out and they've got to say to the guests, I'm sorry, that's just not enough for you. It would have been the talk of the village probably for at least a generation because it would take that generation to die out before the new lot came in and hadn't experienced it themselves. But it's amazing how long these stories can last. And Jesus comes, and by performing this miracle, he delivers the family and those involved from shame. And Jesus does exactly the same for us. Exactly the same for us. He wants us to be free from shame. And shame cripples people. Come across pastoral, you come across many, many people, particularly new Christians, where they believe God has forgiven them. They struggle with forgiving themselves, but they have this memory of past sin. And that brings this sense of shame. And shame says, you're not good enough. Shame says, you never will be good enough. Shame says, you haven't made it. Shame says, you're worse than anyone else. Because that is the way the evil one works. He sits on our shoulder and he whispers these uh, lies into our spirit. You are the only one. I don't know if you've been watching uh, the drama about the post office. If you haven't, watch it. But one of the weapons used in that by the post office was to tell each person they were the only one with that issue. Because when you think you are the only one, that's that sense of isolation, hopelessness, and that is exactly where the evil one, our enemy, wants to get us. Even though we're born again, he will be whispering lies into our spirits saying, you're no good. You should be very ashamed of what you have done. And Jesus comes and he sets us free from shame. And so as we accept the forgiveness of God, we need to accept forgiveness within ourselves, for ourselves, and choose not to remember the sins of the past. That is what shame is. Shame is based upon past failures. Shame is based upon past sin, which we all have. But Jesus has come to wipe the slate clean. Now it tells us God chooses to forget our sin. How do we choose to forget? How do we get to that point where what has happened yesterday no longer determines my spiritual life today? I believe one of the keys is worship. That as we praise and worship Jesus, take attention from ourselves and we look to him so we will find Shame begins to lift. And we need to be free to enjoy the life that Jesus has given us. We find in this, in this story the essence of discipleship. Because when it's discovered that the wine is running out, in verse 5, Jesus says to the servants... Do whatever he tells you. There you are. That's the essence of discipleship. Do what Jesus tells you to do. Because following Jesus is a life of obedience. We follow where he leads. We act upon what he says. Now the interesting thing is here that as, the, uh, as she speaks these words, as the disciples uh, sorry, as the servants begin to 
uh, honour that word and obey that word, they had no idea what Jesus was going to do. You know, we can read so much into these stories because we know the end from the beginning. They're simply told to go and fill the six jars with water. I don't believe they had any idea what was going to happen. I don't believe that in the book of Acts, chapters 1 and 2, that the disciples, as they gathered in that upper room, had any idea of what was going to happen. They are there because Jesus told them to be there. And that is, has got to be the very bedrock of our discipleship of Jesus. Jesus speaks, we obey. Of course, in, in this day and age, part of, and a part of our educational system tells us to question everything. We want the answers from the very beginning. We would have said to Jesus, well, what are you going to do? I'm going to turn water into wine. And the next question would be, well, how are you going to do it? Well, I'm not going to even attempt that one, because Jesus just did it. And the third one would have been, have you carried out a risk assessment? <laughs> what if the wine isn't a very good wine and people are ill? We would have talked ourselves out of being engaged in the provision of the water that Jesus turns into wine. And very often like that, we are like that as Christians. We can talk ourselves out of following Jesus in specifics because he doesn't declare the end from the beginning. And everything in us cries, I want to know, I want to know, I want to know. And Jesus says, obedience is better than sacrifice. As it says in Samuel. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings, Samuel said. And sacrifices as much as in obeying the law. To obey is better than sacrifice. That's what we are called to. A life of following Jesus. When we do not have the answers. And you know the reality is that's a very testing place to be. It's a frustrating place to be. But equally, the reality is we, we, uh, we need, we require more faith when we do not know the end from the beginning than if Jesus had revealed it all. Faith is required day by day by day as we follow Jesus. So in order to follow Jesus, we need to hear what he is saying. And this speaks of relationship. These servants, he heard clearly what Jesus said to them, and they got on and did it. For us, we need to cultivate hearing the voice of God for ourselves. And this can be a big issue for Christians. How do I hear the voice of God? First of all, read the scriptures through which Jesus is glorified. Spend time with Jesus in prayer. We want a shortcut, don't we? We are so used to computer technology where we can press a button and everything happens within a split second. Well, it does when you press the right... Well, actually, it doesn't. It still happens when you press the wrong button, which is a very uh, much a thing I do. 
But the reality is we're brought up in this instant society where we want everything. But Jesus said, I want you to cultivate a relationship with me so that you recognize my voice when I speak to you. You obey my voice because you've heard and fruit will come. There is no shortcuts in building relationships. And we need to be those who cultivate, first and foremost, our relationship with Jesus. And right at the beginning of this new year, we can say to ourselves, right, I am going to make this covenant before God that I will do more to develop my relationship with Jesus. Reading the Word, spending time in prayer, spending time in worship, and you will find that it is, becomes easier to recognize the voice of God speaking to you. If we do not listen, if we do not cultivate relationship, do not expect to recognize the voice. Very simple. And you know the great thing, moving on, the great thing in this story is that Jesus uses ordinary people, the servants, in the working of this miracle of provision. Ordinary people drawn into the story of abundant provision. Now, as we read through the story, we read of the six jars that were there for ceremonial washing purposes. And if we're a mathematician, we can work out that there could have been quite a lot of water required. Now, this is where my visual aid, if you just look at the computer, the highly technical computer screen. Now, in old money, this is a gallon. How many still work in gallons? One. <laughs> Two. Those of a certain generation. You know... If you could see how much petrol is, if it was priced in gallons, you'd have a fit. You really, you really would. I, as someone over there remembers. I can remember when I first started driving, petrol was the equivalent of 33p a gallon. A gallon. Old money. Old money, yes. The equivalent of 33. Used to get three gallons and change for a pound. So here you have the metric equivalent, which is five litres. And the servants would have to transport the water from wherever it was, a well perhaps, to the jars. And there would be about 150 of these to transport from one place to another. 150. Now, you can imagine... For one servant, that would take quite a while. If I was that servant, it just wouldn't have happened. <laughs> you get a couple of gallons, and then, well, that's it, Jesus. You've got to multiply this. <laughs> but it tells us that there are servants engaged in this. Many servants engaged in order to make this miracle happen. And as I was meditating on this, this speaks to me of what Jesus does in the church. It takes us all to come together for the miracle of community to happen. Tells, the Bible tells us we are the body of Christ. And that itself is a miracle, but it requires us to come together. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we are a miraculous community serving a miraculous Savior, producing miraculous events. 
This is the nature of who we are together. God's idea was the church. And he calls ordinary men and women to come together because every one of us has a part to play. You may have been the master of the ceremony. You may have been one of the honored guests. But here, the ordinary servants gather together, obey Jesus, and the miracle occurs because they worked together. The Bible tells us that we have been saved to serve. Every one of us has a part to play in the local body. But as we read through, as we see the glory of Jesus revealed, you know, we see what others do not see. We are a miraculous community. We have been called together by Jesus, for Jesus, in order that his glory might be revealed. But there are many who do not see what we see. At that wedding, it was more than possible to see the miracle and not the majesty of Jesus. To see the works, but not the wonder of Jesus. To see the gift of the best wine, but not the glory of the giver. To see the sign, but not the son. You know, brothers and sisters, as we come, we have that incredible privilege that Jesus has revealed to us himself. He has revealed himself to us. So as we come together, we see the majesty. We see the wonder. We see the glory because we see the Son. Let's stand together. If we could have the band back, please. Close your eyes wherever you are. And wherever you are, just want us to do business with God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. 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 Thank you. Beckley, can you just play? Anything, anything, and then we'll finish with a song. But just wherever you are, just right now, just allow the Spirit of God to come. I particularly want us now, we're not going to ask people out for a ministry time, but I would ask that you make that covenant before God this morning to give more time, invest more of yourself in your relationship with Jesus. Through reading his word, through prayer, through worship.
This is the transforming power of Jesus at work in your life. As you make that covenant, covenant before him, to look to him and not to yourself, not to look to your faults and failings and allow a sense of shame to settle on you, but to be free of that as you look to Jesus, his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness and be free from past failures. Be free from past mistakes. To rise up in a new way as Jesus intends for every one of us in order that we might walk with our heads held high, pointing, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Thank you, Lord. Um, I just asked for this picture to be put up again. Um, because as I saw it, I saw the footsteps going deeper and you could see the marks of the footsteps going off into the distance. And, and I was thinking that in our spiritual life, that the more we go into God, it's like the footsteps. Um, it's like a, an illustration, but our footsteps go deeper the more the sand is soaked so the more we soak into God that we get to know God Um, but I felt God was saying have no fear of sinking sand have no fear of getting bogged down of getting deeper into God you're not going to get bogged down Um, and then I thought of this uh, old song which I think comes from musical Godspell so I'm just going to try and sing it Day by day, day by day, oh dear Lord, three things I pray, to see you more clearly, love you more dearly, follow you more nearly, day by day, day by day, day by day. Oh, dear Lord, three things I pray, to see thee more clearly, love you more dearly, follow you more nearly, day by day. Just allow those words of that song to sink in. We're going to end with the song in a moment, but I just want to give a few moments. For wherever you are in your spiritual walk, there is another step. And Jesus is just saying, I want you to take that step. That my glory may be increasingly revealed in and through you. And if you're here this morning and you've never ever come to that place of putting your faith in Jesus, we would like to talk to you. Please come forward and speak to one of us at the end. But we do thank you, Father. For your grace and your mercy revealed to us in Christ.
And for every follower of Jesus, there is another wedding spoken of in Scripture. Another wedding to which we are all invited. A wedding held in heaven. John writing in Revelation 19, verse 6 says, I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roaring of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride, the church, has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her. Then an angel said, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. That is the wedding to which every follower of Jesus is invited and will attend. Let that burn within your spirit because this speaks of the glory of eternity won for us by Jesus. The invitations are written in blood. The invitations were issued through the death and resurrection of Jesus. We're invited to the wedding of the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world.